Well, good morning. It always happens every time I forget where I put my iPad. I need that. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 4. Going to be continuing in our time here together. Uh, just as a sort of a quick summary of where we've been uh, over the last few weeks. We've uh, been looking at the story of Esther with the theme of greater, and that is everything that we've seen so far in the book of Esther has pointed to God being greater than the circumstances that we see. Uh, We see that in this particular book, uh, there's not a lot of people who are heroes. Everyone uh, in this book has, has made mistakes. Some of them have been quite dreadful mistakes. Some of them have been outright sinful mistakes. Uh, However, in every single situation, God is greater, and that's extremely interesting considering that the name of God is not mentioned in this book in any way. Uh, No one prays in this book, no one reads scripture in this book, uh, no one even mentions the name of God, and yet in all of these circumstances, you can see God clearly orchestrating events. Uh, And so this is week five. The first week, we said that Jesus is a greater king. We looked at King Xerxes. Uh, We looked at the empire that he ruled. And we, uh, we understand that Jesus is a greater king. Uh, week two, we looked at Jesus has a greater way. Week three, that Jesus is a greater bride. And last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus died a greater death. And the summary of last week is really quite simple, uh, is that we looked at throughout this book, there are sins, there are mistakes, and there are tragedies. Uh, and really, those have marked these people's lives. And last week, uh, we ended the story with the bad guy and I say that term loosely because King Xerxes is not a good guy, but the bad guy for the story is Haman. Uh, he ended up casting locks, rolling dice, uh, and bribing the king to annihilate the Jewish people. His idea of a good time is to kill uh, everyone uh, who is there. Uh, and so he's going to completely destroy the people of God. And that leads us here to chapter 4, uh, where really we see... Uh, um, Mordecai's response to Haman's orchestrations. Uh, And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 1, which is not appearing on the screen, so we're going to read it old school fashion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Now, I love this uh, because Mordecai at this moment in his life reminds me uh, a little bit of myself. Uh, When something goes wrong, he runs out into the street, he tears his clothes, and he goes full-on, full-throated yell, something is wrong, try and help me out. Does anyone ever uh, uh, sympathize with this, want to do that themselves? Uh, If you know the movie uh, or the the stage play uh, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, there's, there's a scene where everything has gone wrong and he has his razors out and he runs out into the street and he's just, ah! That's what Mordecai is doing, right? This is everything has gone wrong. Uh, there is an order not only to kill him, uh, but this is a nationwide order. This has gone out to 170 provinces of satraps. This has gone out to everyone in the world. Every single Jew is going to be systematically annihilated. And so Mordecai rends his clothes, he rips them in half, he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, he goes full mourning on this situation. And what's really interesting is 
Uh, even though we read a lot about sackcloth and ashes in the Bible and the Jews doing it, what you need to know is this is not just a, a Jewish custom. It's actually uh, throughout all of ancient history. Every society did something similar to this. In fact, the Persians, when they lost that battle to the Greeks that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, from about a month, every Persian citizen put on sackcloth and ashes and wept in the streets because their god, King Xerxes, had suffered a defeat at the hands of the Greeks. The Greeks had turned back his massive army. And so uh, sackcloth and ashes is something that's actually uh, historically uh, prevalent. And so when someone is in sackcloth and ashes, people know what that's about. They know that this guy is mourning. They know that something has gone wrong and that uh, uh, his life is over or something's happened in his life. Uh, we see plenty of biblical uh, examples of people wearing sackcloth and ashes. Uh, one of the most important ones is King David himself uh, put on sackcloth and ashes when his uh, son, baby infant son, was sick and dying. He put on sackcloth and ashes to show the world that he was in mourning, that something had gone wrong. And so what we see here in verse 1 is Mordecai doing the exact same thing, putting on sackcloth and ashes, going out into the midst of the city, crying aloud with a bitter cry. Uh, verse 2 and 3, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's clothed in sackcloth. Uh, uh, keep that in mind for a second. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. I really want to try and build this picture in your mind. Uh, king Xerxes ruled an empire roughly the same size as the, the continental United States. He controlled it through a, uh, a postal system. He was the first person to invent a postal system, and so he would send his edicts out in every language to every corner of his empire. And when the, the decree from Haman went out, bearing the king's royal seal, saying, we're going to kill the Jews on this date, it uh, disseminated throughout the entire empire, and that reached every Jew living both uh, in captivity and those that had already returned to Jerusalem uh, under King Sirius. Uh, he, he released the Jews to go back to build the temple. And so all of those people learned that the Jews were going to die. Every single one of them. There wasn't a single one who was going to uh, be alive. And so that goes out. Everyone cries. But we read this very interesting thing in verse 2 that says, uh, a person in sackcloth and ashes is not allowed to go before the king. Did you read that? Was that interesting? Man, that king lives in a fragile little world, doesn't he? Like, everything that we've been reading about King Xerxes, he puffs himself up, he sits on a seven-foot throne uh, made of solid gold with, with jewels studded into it. His palace has gold floors with, golden jewel, with jewels and diamonds and rubies and emeralds in the floors that he walks on. His couches are made out of gold and silver. He has uh, uh, purple cloths draped in his palaces with silver curtain rods. Like, this man is wealthy. He has four palaces at this time. He's at the moment in Susa, the capital. Uh, so he's got four palaces. His wife has a palace in every single one of those. So he has eight palaces. Then his concubines have their own palaces. So that's 12 palaces that he owns and controls. He rules the world. He thinks he's a god, but he can't deal with anyone thinking that there's a problem. Do you know these people? 
Uh, I don't know if you've met them. I've met a couple of these people that they live in these fragile little worlds. They always need to think that everything is going 100% right because if anything goes wrong, then their entire world flies off the handle and falls apart. Have you met these people? If you haven't, you're lucky because I, I meet them and you're living in a bubble, maybe you're that person. Like I'm just saying, if you haven't met one of these people, maybe you're one of these people. It's like the crazy, like every family has a crazy person in it, like a crazy uncle or a crazy aunt. And if yours doesn't, that means it's you, right? You've heard that, right? You've heard that expression, right? So this is the same thing. We all know these people who have to live in this tiny little bubble that he has to protect. And here's the thing. He has to protect this idea that he is a God and everything in his kingdom is going according to his plan because if it's not, that means he doesn't have control, which means he's not a God. Does that make sense? Like it sounds like he's just a crazy person, but there's actually a reasoning to this madness. And too often as, as Christians, what we try and do is control every single aspect of our lives. We want to tightly control it, put it in a little bubble, just this is it, this is everything. We don't allow outside influences because that can mess with the plan. And the reality is, as a Christian, that God's plan supersedes any plan that you could possibly have, both in its uh, compassion for your life, but also the impact of your life on others. And so if we tightly control what we think is this plan, we actually don't allow ourselves to open ourselves up to the plan that God has for our lives, which is 100% better than the plan that you have. And so Xerxes is demonstrating... He's demonstrating in his own life the effects of sin. He's puffed himself up to think that he is this God amongst mortals, and yet he can't deal with anything going in. He lives in this fragile little world in every province. Again, I want to reiterate that this is a worldwide event. If you want to put this in perspective, imagine that a decree goes out for the entire world that says every Christian is about to be executed. Every denomination, every age group, every ethnic group, every socioeconomic group, everyone who claims to be a Christian that puts down Christian in that little box, they're about to be executed throughout the world. That's the same thing that's happening here to the Jews. And so it says that they go out into the streets, they start breaking their clothes they rend their clothes, they cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not uh, accept them. I love this response from Esther. I love it because it shows her humanness. Too, too many times we look at these characters in the Bible and we build them up to be these sort of superhuman characters that can never make a mistake. And clearly everything they're doing is because God told them to do that, not just because of their human nature. I love Esther here because when she hears that Mordecai is making a fuss, he's sitting outside of the king's gate, he's torn his clothes, he's wailing in the streets. She grabs him a fresh pair of pants and says, here, just cover up, be quiet. Do you know these people as well? The people that if anything goes wrong, instead of trying to deal with the underlying issue, they just try and cover it up. Or they just try and say, Shh, just be quiet, don't make waves, don't make a fuss, just push it off to the side, it'll be fine. All right. Seeing some of you was looking at me with a blank look, I'll give you an example. And every time I get a blank look, I'll go on from longer. Bill, 
just saying, the clock's broken, so you're in here for as long as I want anyway. Perfect example of people trying to cover things up. If you were to look out into the foyer, you would see this wonderful piece of abstract art on the wall that's kind of brown. That's not supposed to be there. The, the, the cork board underneath started breaking apart, and so we decided to remove it and put the other board up in its place. But when we took it down, we found this horrible glue-like substance underneath. And what we figured out is the wall is made of solid concrete, so instead of finding the right screws to actually sink a board in there properly and have it firmly there, what they decided to do was just glue something over the top. Instead of dealing with a problem, what they decided to do, for better or for worse, was just glue something over the, the top, and now 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years later, however long it's been since that board's been up there, now we have to deal with that mess. When you cover up a mistake or a mess, uh, not dealing with the underlying issue, when you just cover it up, it doesn't go away, it just sticks in the corner. And it's like a piece of fish. If you stick a piece of fish off in the corner and you leave it for longer than a couple of days, what is that piece of fish going to start smelling like? Bad, right? So, maybe you've heard this expression, uh, having your relatives visit is like a piece of fish. After three days, it just starts to sink. No? Look, I come up, I'd heard all of these expressions growing up. If you didn't, you had a sad childhood. I'm just saying. This is Esther. Esther's trying to pretend this isn't happening. Remember, at this time, Esther has not shown anyone that she's a Jew. Mordecai told her to keep that a secret, so no one knows her, uh, her ethnicity. Everyone thinks she's a person, Persian. She goes by her Persian name, so she's in hiding. And so when she sees Mordecai, who everyone knows is her uncle, crying about the decree to kill the Jews, she knows that people are going to put two and two together and say, uh, if Mordecai is a Jew and Mordecai is her uncle, therefore Esther is a Jew and we need to kill her too. So what Esther is doing is actually not caring about Mordecai in any way. She's caring about her own wife. And she's trying to cover up Mordecai so that she can protect her own life. Like I said, sometimes the, the people in these stories aren't these massive biblical heroes that we build them up to be. Sometimes they're just sinful humans whose sinfulness and humanness gets exposed under the light of a loving God. And so that's why she's in this story, so that we can learn from her example and understand that sometimes our mistakes can't just be swept under the rug or we can't just put a notice board over the top of them. Sometimes we have to deal with them right there, right then, and when we do, things go easier. So, chapter 4, starting the verse 5. We're continuing on, verse 5. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was and why it was. So uh, in the palace, she hadn't heard what was going on. She was uh, completely oblivious to uh, everything that's happening here. Right? Are you with me so far? Uh, Hatach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him, all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went to and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So the eunuch goes out to Mordecai. Mordecai, why are you doing this? Why are you tearing your clothes? Why are you covered in ashes? What's with the sackcloth? This is summer. It's not really a great fashion trend. 
and Mordecai says, I'm in sackcloth and ashes because Haman is paying this amount of money to the king so that my people, everyone, every single Jew in the entire kingdom is going to be killed. And then that unit goes back to Esther and reports everything that's going on. Esther is woefully ignorant of the things that are happening in her kingdom. Now, a lot of the times we look at the ancient world uh, and we think, well, women didn't really, you know, she wasn't very powerful because the man was in charge, all this kind of stuff. But the reality of the Persian Empire is that women, especially noble women, held a very high standing in their society and had controls in place uh, around her. And so Esther had some form of power, and yet you can see from these passages that she sort of cocooned herself away. She's uh, in her palace. She doesn't go out of her palace. She's just there. She's not interacting with the people anymore. She's just being in and of herself. And what you need to know is that as a Christian, we have been designed by God not to seclude ourselves away in the little cloister of our church and not uh, uh, engage with the world. But as Christians, we've actually been called out of the church to engage with the world. And so Esther here is hiding. And what we as Christians need to understand is that hiding is not the answer. Hiding is not the way to go. It's not what you and I have been created to do. You and I have been created by God to live in community with each other and then to take the message of Jesus Christ to the world who needs it. The world desperately needs to know the love of God. And if we don't tell them, who will? You need to know God to tell people about him. All right? Amen? Are you guys asleep? I just want to know. If you're asleep, I can yell louder. It's possible. I can preach angry. I've done it before. I'll do it again. 5 verse 10. Goish. 4 verse 10. Sorry. I'm, I'm already angry. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, in order that she doesn't get exposed as a Jew, she's sending a person back and forth rather than going and talking to her uncle. You picking up on this? She has a runner. I'm just saying. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. We've talked about this in previous weeks, right? This king had like a death wish. And if anything happened that he didn't like, he put you to death. If you walked in front of his throne without being called, put to death. If you stood on the rug in front of his throne, put to death. If he wasn't even sitting on his throne and you walked in front of it, you know what happened? You got put to death. He has this thing about killing people, which is not a really good thing to do when you're a king. Uh, if you're ever in a position of authority, if you're ever in leadership, putting people to death just as a baseline isn't a good strategy for being a good leader. Okay? I'm not sure if you go to like John Maxwell's leadership classes or you read his leadership books, but nowhere in any of those books are you going to find if someone disagrees with you, kill them. Okay? That's not a hallmark of a good leader. It's a good hallmark of a sociopath or a psychopath, but not someone who is a king. And listen, it's also not the hallmark of our God. See, Xerxes is pretending to be God. Our God doesn't look at you and say, I'm going to kill you. Our God looks at Jesus and says, die for them. Okay? We're going to get to that uh, on Friday when we have our Good Friday service, uh, 6 o'clock here at the core, in case you missed that announcement. We're, we're going to look at the death of Jesus here. 
<clears throat> but the reality is our God doesn't act like any king of the earth. When people upset these kings, they just kill people. God doesn't do that. He deliberately and exhaustively found a way for you and I to enter into a relationship with him, and that was through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't even know where I was. Where am I? Anyway, uh, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, and I could preach an entire sermon on the metaphor behind that one, so that he may live. But for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And what we see here really, again, is that fickle nature of the king. If you remember a couple of chapters ago, he couldn't get enough of Esther. Esther comes in, he's awestruck, he's like, she's the one, put her in the palace, let's dress her up, let's make her pretty, give her makeup, get her good dresses, she's going to be the one, she's the new queen, she's going to be fantastic. Uh, Esther, 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 for for like two and a half chapters, just Esther this, Esther that. And it says here that the king hadn't called her into his presence for some 30 days. He quickly tired of the presence of his queen because he has a fickle heart. And what we, we learned a couple of weeks ago is that when men treat women like objects, women are degraded. And what happened here is Xerxes treats everyone, everyone in his kingdom as an object. He doesn't treat people as individuals. He treats them as possessions. And when you possess something, you quickly tire of it, especially if it's sinful. Okay? Uh, uh, sin is very attractive at the get-go, but after a while, that sin doesn't satisfy anymore, and you move on to something else. Uh, things don't hold our attention very long in this day and age that we're in, where you can get everything instantaneously, any information instantaneously. No one has time to sit down and read anymore. If you want to know something, what do you do? You Google it, right? You don't go to the encyclopedia on the shelf. Now, I don't own an encyclopedia. I'm not selling them and I'm not, you know, promoting them in any way. However, what I'm saying very specifically here is that the king is used to instant gratification and is used to fulfilling the lust of his heart whenever he wants to. And as soon as he wants to move on to something new, he does. And what God calls us to do is to find joy in what we have, not in what we want. You need to be able to find joy in what you already have, not in that uh, ethereal, someday maybe I'll get this. Because that's not going to give you joy because it's not tangible. That promotion that you're seeking, that new house that you want, the white picket fence that you want, the puppy that you want, the whatever it is that you want is not going to bring you lasting joy. Only a relationship with God is going to bring you lasting joy. Now, a puppy is going to bring you momentary happiness until the first time he makes a mistake and does something on the carpet that we don't want to talk about. Then that happiness is going to go away for a brief second, isn't it? It's fleeting. Our relationship with God is what brings us joy. And I would also submit to you this for your consideration. It's not just our relationship uh, with God that brings us joy, but it's sharing that relationship with others that brings us joy. You, You have to be real specific with this. It's not just the fact that you love Jesus and Jesus loves you. That does give you joy. But if you want more joy and the fullness of joy, what Scripture calls the fullness and completeness of joy, then it's also sharing that relationship with others. Uh, Humans were created to live in community. And part of our community is sharing our relationship and joy in God with others, which brings us more joy. Verse 12. 
And they told Mordecai, here we go, back and forth, wouldn't you hate to be this eunuch? I mean, for other re- I, there's other reasons I'd hate to be the eunuch, but for, like, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. Just talk to each other. Don't you hate this? Don't you, have you ever worked in an office where, like, this person won't talk to this person, and so they're like, can you tell so-and-so this? And uh, so-and-so said this. Oh, can you tell them this? And you go back, and then you go forth. Like, this eunuch, poor guy, I'm just saying. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, "Mm, why don't you come out and hear yourself, niece? Like, I adopted you, you're like my daughter, come out and talk to me. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the famous line from Esther. If you've heard a sermon preached on Esther before, chances are this is the line that you've heard. If you've been to a youth retreat, if you've been to a women's retreat or a men's retreat, I can guarantee at one time they hit upon this in a call for evangelism. Who knows that you have come to this moment at this time in this place for such a time as this? What you need to know contextually, Mordecai is using this as a threat to Esther. This is not a coffee cup verse. This is not a bumper sticker verse. This is not get this on a cool Christian t-shirt type of verse. This is actually contextually a threat. He's saying to Esther that, uh, that if you don't do anything, your entire heritage is going to be wiped out, which includes her. He's saying if I get killed as a Jew, they're going to come for you next because they know we're related. Now, this is the first passage of Scripture that we've come to that uh, that in any way hints of the greater workings of God in this chapter of the Bible. This is the first sort of workings. He says, if if you don't do anything, help will arise from another place. In, In some areas, Mordecai here is displaying faith. It's not overt, it's not verbalized, but this is the first time in four chapters that he's finally sort of evoking the Jewish understanding that God is going to send deliverance through the Jews. That the promise to Abraham is that the world is going to be blessed through the seed of the Jews, through the Messiah. And this is the first sort of time that Mordecai has put two and two together and he's like, I don't believe that God is going to allow us to be wiped out without fulfilling his promises. So this is actually a little bit of a glimmer of a hope for Mordecai, except for the fact that he then turns it into a threat to Esther. Well, in the Salvation Army, we believe in hell, and we believe that if you die unrepentant as a sinner, you're going to go there. But listen, that's not a great tool for evangelism. Like, uh, you can try out if you want. Go up to a random person on the street and say, hey, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity. Let's start a conversation. (laughs) What's going to happen to you? Now, it doesn't mean that you don't believe in the realities of hell. It doesn't mean that you don't believe in the severity of the punishment or wrath of God. But what it means is that in our culture, in our society, there is a way of talking to people, threatening them, not a real great conversation opener, right? Am I wrong? Like walk up to someone and say, hey, if you don't talk to me, I'm going to punch you in the face. What's going to happen? They're going to call the cops and you're going to jail 
where you can try that in jail and see what happens to you. Evangelism doesn't come from a place of fear. Evangelism comes from a place of love and a place of joy. And this is my biggest problem with Christians. Most of the time, we sit in church like it is painful to be in church. Our faces look like we've been sucking lemons. We don't laugh. We don't joke. There's a reverence that we have for God, and that's great, but we don't enjoy each other as a family. And if anyone walks in through the door and they look at the way that most people behave in church, they're like, I don't want to be part of that. They're all sad. Don't be a sad Christian. Be a joyful Christian. You have been saved from death. You have been saved from the consequences of your sin through Jesus Christ. You should be joyous. You should be happy. If any of you look like you're sucking lemons, I'm going to give you some lemons to suck on. Because if you don't believe it, I can preach for two and a half hours straight. I could do it, and I will. I'll threaten you with the word. I will pull out every reference to joy in Scripture. I will preach exegetically through every single verse about joy until you are happy. Get happy. Verse 15, here we go. And look, I make jokes. I like you to laugh. It doesn't mean that the Bible, we don't show reverence to the Bible, we don't show reverence to Scripture, we don't show reverence to the Holy Spirit moving amongst us. But I truly believe, truly, truly, that as we go through Scripture, as we open our hearts and open our minds to what God has for us, that there should be joy in that, there should be happiness in that, that we don't need to... Uh, treat this in such a way like you're coming to, to school. That, oh, yeah, I've got an hour of class today. And the teacher's in a bad mood. He's going to yell at us and go really long. Be happy. Verse 15 to 17. Here, well, look, we're coming to the end here. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Here we go again. Go back out. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I... And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Finally, we're seeing Esther actually taking the responsibility that's been given to her. Sometimes when you've been put into a position of leadership or authority, sometimes you don't want the buck to stop with you. Sometimes you want to delegate responsibility to other people. You want to take all the praise when things go right, but if anything goes wrong, you say, no, that was so-and-so's fault. Right? I'm very fond of this example. In Scripture, in, uh, in, in the New Testament, uh, Paul says that the head of the, the family is the husband. He says that wife, you were to submit to your husband. What's actually in there in that submission clause, as I like to call it, is that when the husband takes the authority over the family, he also needs to take the responsibility that goes with it. And too often what we have is men who are really great at wanting their wives to submit to them, but they take no responsibility when their decisions go poorly. And if you don't believe that, you can look to the very first family, Adam and Eve. Now, Eve made a mistake in the garden. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have read the... the book of Genesis very closely, but it's always been very fascinating to me that when Satan comes to Eve to tempt her in the garden, uh, he comes in the form of a snake, and scripture actually says that Adam was standing there, 
right? Did, you, did any of you skip over that little, that lovely little line in Scripture? It says that Eve is standing here, the snake is standing here, the snake is tempting Eve, and Adam's over here like some dolt going, no, no, talk to the snake. What could possibly go wrong? Like, and so as the head of the household, because God's laws don't change from generation to generation, so he is the head of the household, and he has been told that everything on the planet submits to his authority. At that time, Adam should have stood there and said, Eve, knock it off. Snake, go away. Don't listen. Don't do. The fall is very often placed on the responsibility of Eve But I can tell you it is not Eve's fault or responsibility because she should have submitted to her husband. And he should take responsibility for his actions. And so a chapter later when God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what did you do? And he says, well, it wasn't my fault. This woman whom you gave me. If you are married, men, if you have a wife, you have the biblical place to take authority in the household of spiritual consequence you need to take spiritual authority but it also means that you have spiritual responsibility responsibility is not a word that this culture likes to to have you you have all these rights you have the right to free speech you have the right to assembly you have the right to practice your religion as you see fit but what's not taught is that for every right that you have you have an equal responsibility when you have the right to freedom of speech you have the right to make sure that your words aren't hurtful right finally finally esther who's been given a position of power and responsibility within the persian empire she is queen of all of persia finally she is stepping up also into her role of responsibility as a leader amongst the jewish nation and she says go away and fast fast day and night and we'll do this and then she ends with this line which is about as rock star as you can get in scripture if i perish i perish esther has finally made the decision that there are some things worth dying for that just living your life and living it comfortably is not the end goal for those that believe in god it's not the end goal The end goal is knowing that there are some things worth dying for. There are some things worth fighting for. There are some hills that we need to stand on no matter what comes and what attacks. Now, you need to choose those hills carefully because they come all the time and you only need to die on specific hills. So you need to choose your battles wisely. But Esther has come to this moment where she understands this. If I perish, I perish in this there are some things worth dying for. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time you've given us to come into your presence and to worship you. I pray, Lord God, for each one of us here that we can fully grasp the joy that you have given us through salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we are not sour Christians or sad Christians, but instead we can be joyful Christians and we can take that joy and share it with others. I pray, Lord God, that you be with each one of us as we go our separate ways. Those that are traveling, Lord, we pray again for safe traveling mercies. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your son's precious name. In the name of Jesus, amen.